Good morning. Glad that you are here this morning. Glad that you are joining us. Uh, wherever you are, you're in the right place. Sitting in your living room or in the den, uh, you're in the right place if your heart's in the right place, uh, getting ready to worship God. We've been singing and weeding around the table, and I know that you've been encouraged already. For the past 40 years, 40 years plus, I have subscribed to the magazine Sports Illustrated. And for years, every Thursday when Sports Illustrated hit my mailbox, I'd take it, and the first thing I read was the last page. Because for years, the last page contained the life of Riley, written by Rick Riley. It was just a one-page article written kind of on the the basis of sports, but really it was a social commentary about all kinds of things. Over 20 years ago, uh, Rick Riley wrote an article on the back page of Sports Illustrated entitled, Why Are We Here? It's one of my favorite articles that he's ever written. I've probably shared it with some of you in different settings before, but when I was preparing for this lesson, I just kept thinking back to his article, Why Are We Here? The references are, again, 20 years old, but uh, the message is pretty timeless, I think. Let me share with you what he wrote. So, we're lying on our backs on the grass in the park next to our hamburger wrappers, my 14-year-old son and I, watching the clouds loiter overhead when he asked me, Dad, why are we here? This is what I said. I've thought a lot about it, son, and I don't think it's all that complicated. I think maybe we're here just to teach a kid how to bunt or eat sunflower seeds without using his hands. We're here to pound the steering wheel and scream as we listen to the game on the radio 20 minutes after we've pulled into the garage. We're here to look all over, give up, and finally find the ball in the hole. We're here to watch at least once as the pocket collapses around Brett Favre and it's fourth and never, or as the count goes to three and one on Barry Bonds with the bases loaded. And the pitcher begins wishing he'd gone to medical school. Or a little hole you couldn't get a skateboard through suddenly opens in front of Jeff Gordon with one lap to go. We're here to wear our favorite sweat-soaked baseball cap, our torn slippery rock sweatshirt, and the Chuck Taylors we lettered in on a Saturday morning with with nowhere we have to go and no one special we have to be. We're here to nail a yield sign with an apple core from half a block away. We're here to make our dog fall for the same lame fake throw for the gazillionth time. We're here to win the stuffed bear or to go broke trying. I don't think the meaning of life is gnashing our teeth over our eventual death, but tasting all the tiny moments that come before it. We're here to be the YMCA coach when Wendell, the one whose glasses always fog up, finally makes the only perfect backdoor pass all season. We're here to be there when our kid has three goals and an assist, and especially when he doesn't. We're here to watch the rocket peer in for the sign, two out, bases loaded, bottom of the career. We're here to witness Tiger lining up the 22-foot double breaker to win and not need his autograph afterward to prove it. We're here to do a one and a half for the grandkids. I don't think we're here to make Sports Center. The really good stuff never does. None of us are going to find ourselves on our deathbed saying, boy, I wish I'd spent more time on the Hibbings account. No, we're going to say, that scar, 
I got that scar stealing a home run from consolidated plumbers. See, grown-ups spend so much time doggedly slaving toward the better car, the perfect house, the big day that'll finally make them happy. When happy just walked by wearing a bicycle helmet two sizes too big for him. We're not here to find joy at the end of a long journey. The journey is the joy. Does that answer your question? And he said, no, not really, Dad. No. No, what I meant was, why are we here when Mom said pick her up 45 minutes ago? You saw that one coming, right? But you know, a lot of people are wondering, why are we here? And if I were to ask you, why are we here? Why are you here? Not here online, you know, watching this thing, but why are you here? Why do we exist? What is our purpose in life? And how do you keep track? You know, how do you know if you're, you're doing it right or not? I think for the past couple of weeks, a lot of people have been asking, why are we here? What's going on? What's our purpose? God's Word actually talks a lot about why we're here and what our purpose in life is. But a lot of people will tell you, and I think even some Christians will tell you, you know, to answer questions like that, yes, those answers are in God's Word, but, you know, it's an ancient text. And to answer those difficult questions, you've got to dig pretty deeply. I mean, those things are pretty obscure, a little bit subtle, and it really is going to take a very deep-thinking theologian to be able to kind of parcel out those kind of answers of why we're here. Well, (laughs) since I am not a deep-thinking theologian, I'm going to disagree with that stance. I actually think that God's Word is pretty clear on why we're here. Travis, uh, just a few minutes ago, threw a whole bunch of scripture at you. I want to throw some more scripture at you. And I'm going to tell you right up front, the scripture that I'm going to share with you, it is not complicated. It is not obscure. It is not subtle. It's just really clear. It's pretty obvious. Once some people asked Jesus how to live the best life, Jesus' answer was, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Once he was talking to his disciples, and he told them how to conduct themselves, and he said, a new commandment I give you. Love one another. He was talking to his disciples once and about how they would be identified. How people would look at them and know, oh, you're with Jesus, aren't you? And he said, by this all men will know you're my disciples if you... Love one another. There was a disciple of Jesus by the name of John. John would later write, Everyone who's been born of God, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And to make sure that this wasn't some deep, obscure teaching, John kind of said it backwards then. Whoever does not love does not know God. Because, and then he says it so crystal clear, God is love. There was a guy named Peter who kind of jumped on this agenda as well. Peter would write things like, above all else, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. Later on, a guy named Paul came along. 
Paul was not a fisherman like uh, Peter and John. Paul was highly educated, a Pharisee. Certainly Paul would get a little deeper into the weeds on this philosophical question of why are we here. Not so much. Paul would write things like, pay off all your debts. Except the debt of love, no one can pay that. Paul would tell the people that are reading his letters, clothe yourselves with kindness and compassion. Why are we here? What's our life supposed to be about? Again, a lot of really smart people have argued that question for centuries. I've thought a lot about it. I don't think it's that complicated. I think we're here to love. In fact, if I were to pick one word that kind of summarizes God's word, I'd probably choose the word love. Love, 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 love. The gospel in a word is love. Let me give you a Dr. Seuss-esque description. What makes a church great? What does the devil hate? What do you look for in a mate? What do you hope for on a date? What does a child await? What is impossible to overrate? What drives people to procreate? What is humanity's ultimate fate? It's love, love, love. Over and over and over again in Scripture, especially the New Testament, you read about love. Life is about love. The church is built on love. Community is founded on love. Spiritual maturity is measured in love. The gauge of a life well lived is love. This morning I want to spend just a little bit of time in one of the most famous chapters in all of Scripture. It's the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. You know it as the love chapter. In fact, if you're married, there's a real good chance that some portion of 1 Corinthians 13 was spoken in your wedding ceremony. In fact, raise your hand right now if some portion of 1 Corinthians 13 was in your wedding. Just raise your hand up in your living room. Raise your hand. Go ahead. You know I can't see you. (laughs) But I know that some of you are raising your hand. And I also know more of you should be raising your hand because I know a lot of you had 1 Corinthians 13 quoted in your wedding ceremony because I married a lot of you. And I usually use something out of 1 Corinthians 13 in my wedding ceremonies. But I need to give you a little bit of context about this famous chapter because the context is really important in understanding and sort of being, to, being able to um, apply 1 Corinthians 13. It wasn't really written in the context of a Hallmark movie. The church that, that was meeting at Corinth, that, that who Paul would address this letter to, they were a mess. If you read the chapter right before 13, chapter 12, Paul is talking to people who are egotistical, um, a lot of conflict, people who were showing off, people who were uh, arrogant, had a lot of unresolved conflict going on. If you read the chapter right after the love chapter, chapter 14, it's the same mess. I mean, those Christians that were worshiping in Corinth, they they really were a mess. 
And then stuck between chapter 12 and chapter 14, Paul writes the love chapter. And I don't think for a minute that Paul was writing a letter to the church at Corinth and thought to himself, I need to stop right here and write something that people in Tampa, Florida, 2,000 years from now can use in their weddings. I'm going to wedge it in right here. Not at all. 1 Corinthians 13 is not really a wedding passage. In fact, I don't know anybody who needs 1 Corinthians 13 less than someone who's about to get married. This love chapter, it was written to very messy, difficult people who were surrounded by other messy, difficult people, and they had created a messy, difficult church environment. It was written to a lot of people who were just allowing selfishness and resentment and bitterness and envy and a sense of entitlement. It was written to people who thought, I deserve to be noticed. I deserve to be appreciated more than this person. I'm going to lift myself up in the same time kind of pushing this person down. It was written to people who were filtering everything through the lens of me, me, me. Sound familiar? And in the chaos of that atmosphere, in in the fighting and the confusion of what was going on in, in the church in Corinth, Paul would pin these beautiful words that we know as the love chapter. I want to read chapter 13 uh, this morning. And you can read along with me, uh, or you can just kind of listen and let these beautiful spirit-inspired words wash over you this morning. I'm actually going to start at the last verse in chapter 12. And now I will show you the most excellent way. Here we go. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I am nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, then we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It doesn't matter how much I know. It doesn't matter how much I have. I can be the smartest guy in the world. I can be the richest guy in the world. I can be the most powerful man in the world, 
But Paul says, if I don't have love, I have nothing. I can know it all, I can have it all, I can do it all. But if I don't love, it means absolutely nothing. Let me share with you this morning my um, online math tutorial. I know you were told there would be no math today, but I have a little bit of math for you this morning. It's a pretty simple math equation, but it's a really important equation. Here you go. Everything minus love equal nothing. Or if you prefer, I, I put a more optimistic equation there too. Love plus nothing equals everything. And I'm not sure if that's the associative property or the distributive property. Beulah can help me out here. But they're both saying the same thing. Everything, and you take love out of the equation, you got nothing. I saw that on a meme this past week while I was preparing for this lesson. It was attributed to some uh, uh, author, and I thought, wait a minute. That's Paul. <laughs> you took that from Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Everything minus love equal nothing. And he's so right. Where love is absent, hate will reign. The two are mutually exclusive. You can't love and hate at the same time. You can't love and hate the same person. You say, well, you know, uh, love the sinner, hate the sin. Why don't you love the sinner, hate your sin? Because we're all sinners. Where love is absent, hate will reign. And that's true for individuals. And that's true for groups of people. That's true for churches. Only love will lift us above hatred and prejudice and narrow-mindedness. Only love is going to lift us above the pain and the heartache that so many people are experiencing right now. And I believe that with all my heart. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to spend a little bit of time in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're not going to exhaust it by any means, but I want to come back to it for a few weeks. Because again, if you have to boil down everything that God's story is about, it all begins and it really ends with love. The most famous sentence in the most famous book in the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You know, the pain that we're feeling right now summed up on a cross. And because of that, when pain and, and suffering and heartache get shared in love, somehow it becomes redemptive. And it becomes healing. And it can, it can touch us. Now, you have seen, and, and you will see more, staggering examples of love in the middle of pain and heartache. Pay attention to what's going on in the world right now. There's, there's a lot of uh, turmoil. Pay attention to what's going on in our communities. A lot of hurt. But you're going to see incredible examples of people loving each other. In the New Testament, John was referred to as the disciple Jesus loved. And I don't know if it's because Jesus loved him so much, but for some reason, John writes an awful lot about love. All the New Testament writers do. But nobody writes about love 
quite to the extent that John does. John said in 1 John chapter 4, So you see, our love for Him comes as a result of His loving us first. If anyone says, I love God, but keeps on hating his brother, he's a liar. For if he doesn't love his brother who's right there in front of him, how can he love God whom he's never seen? And God Himself has said that no one must love God himself has said that one must love not only God, but his brother too. John said, I love because he loved me first. And I wonder how many times or in, in, in what ways uh, Jesus let John know how much he loved him. Now I wonder if Jesus was in the habit of saying, hey John, love you. Good to see you, John. I wonder if maybe when they left, uh, you know, went somewhere, he would say, hey, love you, buddy. And I sort of wonder how John reacted to that. Did he react by saying, love you too, Jesus? Did he get kind of embarrassed and look down at the ground, kind of awkward moment? I don't know. But I do know that sometimes it's almost as difficult to receive love as it is to show love. I remember when my children were real small. I would quite often go into their bedrooms when they were asleep and just watch them sleep. And I know if you've never had kids, that sounds kind of creepy. But if you've had kids, you know you've all done it. All us parents, we go in and we just look at our children sleeping in their bed. And we're just overcome with this feeling of love. Oh, overcome that, you know, this, just this tenderness and these sweet little human beings that are lying there. And we think, how could, you know, I ever get mad at this little person? And then they wake up and, you know, we remember how we get mad at them. But I can remember being in my kid's room at night and just watching them sleep. And just overcome with gratitude. And, and I remember praying in their rooms, thank you, God. Thank you for allowing me to be the dad of this little person. You know, you, there's just a special kind of love that you feel when you're looking down at your child. And it's occurred to me that what I had felt and what I remember feeling, what I still feel to this day, that's just an echo of what God feels when He looks down at His children. All of His children. Because we've all been created by God in the image of God. We've all been created as children of God. If anyone says, I love God, but keeps hating his brother, he's a liar. I want you to, to imagine uh, uh, two different people this morning. The first person is just kind of an over-the-top giver and receiver of love. He's just one of those guys that um, he just... He just kind of exudes compassion and caring everywhere he goes. At work, everybody knows he's the guy that you go to with your victories or your struggles. He's the guy that's going to give you great advice. At home, he's just the real deal. You know, he loves his family. Um, he, he's the one who's always encouraging people. He's the guy that, that always has something kind to say. If he makes a mistake, he's really honest about it and he asks for forgiveness. He's able to confront people and give you advice in a loving way that's you know, not going to break the connection. If he's wrong, he'll admit it. He'll ask for forgiveness. 
Other than that, there's nothing special about him. He lives in a pretty uh, modest apartment. He has a very short resume. He doesn't drive a nice car. He's not famous in any way. He's just a deep, abiding, life-changing, joy-producing, other-centered, God-rooted, hope-giving, life-affirming lover of people. And everybody recognizes it. The second guy, not so loving. Everyone at work knows him to be kind of a jerk. He always looks out for himself. He always is looking for ways to get even with somebody who he perceives might have wronged him. Um, His spouses become exes. His children are estranged. His friends don't trust him. He's arrogant, narcissistic, manipulative. Other than that, he's got a pretty good life. Other than completely flunking at love, he's pretty well off. He drives a nice car. He's brilliant in some other ways. Question, who would you rather be around? The first guy or the second guy? Who would you choose? Jesus says, choose love. Every time, choose love. John says, choose love. Peter, Paul, Mary, uh, everyone in the New Testament uh, that will tell you, choose love. That's why we're here. We're here to love people. You know, you think about what it takes to love. It doesn't take special education. It doesn't take some advanced degree. It doesn't take a large bank account. It doesn't take any real special uh, knowledge that, that, um, that you know, some people have and some people don't. It just takes a realization of how much we've been loved and how much grace we've been given and how many chances we've been offered and then a decision to love our Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and a decision to love our neighbors as ourselves. Listen, no one who succeeds at love will fail at life. I'm old enough to have seen this played out over and over again. I'm telling you, no one who succeeds at love is going to fail at life. And the converse is just as true. No one who fails at love is ever really going to succeed in life. Why are we here? I've thought a lot about it. I don't think it's that complicated. I think we're here to love our Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I think we're here to love our neighbors. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters whose hearts are breaking this morning. I pray for those in our community and in our country who are suffering. I pray for people who desperately want to be loved but feel so alone for those who want so much to give love but feel rejected. Father, would you forgive us? Would you heal us? Would you use us to be ambassadors for a Savior who not only spoke about love but acted on that love? 
Savior who laid down his life for the people that he loved. There's no greater love than the love of Jesus on the cross. May we use every opportunity that we have to share and to show the love of Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.